For anybody that knows me um, or has known me for a while, it probably looks odd. Most of you don't know, but there may be some people online and my mother's here. Um, I never use notes. Now, part of that is not, uh, it's not out of arrogance. It's more of the fact that I'm dyslexic. <laughs> so using notes is very, very difficult for me because anytime I look up and look back down, it just looks like a, a bowl of alphabet soup. I can't understand what I'm looking at. Today, I have at least tried to attempt to put down notes. And there's a reason for that. Paul's writings in, in Romans 9 uh, is very complex, if we allow it to be. And we need to go into some detail and talk about some things that may or may not make sense to you today. So we're going to try to maybe bring it all together and pack it up so that you can understand it. In fact, Paul's writings can be so difficult at times that even uh, Peter said, hey, look, the, the, the dude's off the charts. Like, I can't understand what he says half the time, but I know he's a godly man. And they disagreed a lot on things. But see, that's the great part about Christianity. You and I can disagree on things, but we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. The thing to keep in mind is that as Christians, we have essentials. And that's really what Paul's been talking about through the first seven chapters, is that there are essentials in Christianity. And it all has to do with the gospel. It has to do with Jesus Christ. It has to do with the fact that, that we're sinners, that we need Christ, that, that he was born of a virgin, that he saved us through our sins, through the, the crucifixion on the cross, and that he rose again. We can all agree as Christians that those are the essentials. Would, I, would you agree with that? Anything beyond that, we're just speculating most of the time as individuals on what we think is the best educated guess that we have. So today, let's go ahead and, and jump into Romans. And I did bring my Bible, but I uh, was told that the translation that I gave Austin, uh, we don't have. So uh, I must be using a really, really uh, funky translation that nobody can find. Uh, it's actually not that. It's just the fact that we didn't purchase it until today, and it's not available today. So I will try to, uh, so I don't confuse you with different words, I'm going to try to read the scripture off the back wall. Let's see and hope this goes well today. Let's start with chapter, uh, ver chapter 9, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Now let's stop there because last week, Pastor Frank talked about the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 and talked about the importance of the Holy Spirit. So right away, Paul starts things off by saying, hey, look, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So right away, he's telling us the importance of the Holy Spirit. How many of you have thought about the Holy Spirit being important in your walk? If you haven't, Paul's telling you it's important. That's how he starts off uh, verse 1. Let's go ahead and move on to verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing grief in my heart. Now, again, I'm going to stop at two. I'm not going to stop after every verse. Don't get worried. It's not going to take all day. But I think it's important to also stop here because Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. As Christians, I think sometimes we have this misconception that once we accept Christ and we become Christians, our life is good. We no longer should have grief. And if we do, 
we question what's wrong with us. Why do we have grief? Why do we have sorrow? We shouldn't, right? We're Christians. All our hope rests in Jesus. So there shouldn't be grief. Am I right? But Paul says, I have great sorrow. I have unceasing grief in my heart. I don't know about you, but I don't consider myself a better Christian or a better man than Paul. So if he's allowed to have grief, if he's allowed to have sorrow, then I understand as a Christian, those are just human human feelings that I'm allowed to have. But I can still have hope in Christ. Now let's go on and and read uh, verses 3 through 5. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from who is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever Amen. Now, there's a lot within this. And we might say, okay, Paul's addressing the Israelites here, and and he's talking about the fact that he's grieved that they don't know who Christ is. And then he starts talking about who they are. Why would it be important for us as Christians to know who the Israelites are, who the Jews are? For many of us, probably we look at the Jews and we think, How could they not get it? How could they not understand who Christ is? I mean, after all, they are the adopted son. Deuteronomy 6, 8 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It was not because you are more numerous than the other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You're going to see this a lot, and, and this is what Paul does. He goes back and he references the Old Testament to explain what's happening. He does this because he's talking to not only Greeks, but to Jews as well. And he's saying, hey, look, you were the adopted. It says right here in Deuteronomy 6, 8, this is what God did. He chose you. He picked you as a people. That's different than us. That's different than anybody else. Israel was the only nation who was chosen as a people. Then he also says that they had the glory. In Exodus 13, 21, it talks about how God came to them as a cloud during the day It was a pillar of light at night, and he sat and consumed with them. He was amongst them. He hasn't done that with anybody else up to this point. He's talking about the fact that, hey, look, you were adopted. You had the glory. And now he's saying to them that you have all these things. You have the the lineage. I mean, if you look at who the fathers are of, of the Israel nation, I mean, you have... Uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is unlike anybody else in history. And this is important because he's going to make a case in 10 and 11 for what's happening with the Jewish nation. And again, we'll see why that's important to us in just a little bit. And so he goes on and talks about 
all the things, how they had to worship, and how everything that they had was given to them specifically as a people. It's crazy when we read that because they get big, everything, and yet, and yet, they still turned away. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, it, it makes your heart hurt because when you read it, it's all about God making promises, God making covenants, and then the Israelites turning around and disobeying that <laughs> over and over. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I keep thinking, how is it that the Israelites couldn't get it? I mean, God kept telling them, just do these things. I mean, with the covenants, we see the, the, the covenant with Noah, that was unconditional. There was nothing that needed to be done with that. But then with the covenant with Abraham, the stipulation was that Abraham must follow God into a new land. And he did that. With Moses, he made a covenant with Israel. And then, of course, he made a covenant with David that his descendants, if they remained faithful, would stay on the throne. And then, of course, the most important one, the one that they did not get was the new covenant, which was the covenant with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when we will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. He gave them the law through Moses. He gave them worship in Leviticus. He told them where and how and, and, and what to build in order to worship God. He gave them the promises. He promised Abraham that many nations would come through him. These promises were all fulfilled. And yet, we still see that Paul grieves because the Israelites have turned from this. Now if we look at Romans 9, 6 through 9. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because... They are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Okay. So here we see that Isaac is the one that's going to be carrying on the promise that has been given to Abraham. Let's read on. Seven. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, uh, your descendants will be named Let's go on to eight. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children to God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Who are the children of the promise? The children that are coming through Isaac. Now, many of us know that, that Abraham had a son named Ishmael, and he's very important to the Islamic nation. But altogether, Abraham had eight sons. But the promise only goes through one, and that one is Isaac. Later, Isaac had uh, two sons, so let's read on. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, this is important because the choosing of which son the lineage would go through 
had nothing to do with what they did. It was merely God's selection. So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So let's stop there. So God's telling us that he is selecting. Now, for those who don't understand what Romans uh, is used for, there are those who use Romans to justify um, what we would call Reformed theology um, or uh, Calvinistic theology. Basically that they use Scripture within Romans 9 to say that we are all selected either for damnation or for salvation. And they're using scripture here to say that God has elected and chosen Isaac over all the others. And then he has chosen Jacob over Esau. And then later we'll see the the predicament that happens with Pharaoh that kind of ties this all together for them. But let me suggest this, that the election was not necessarily about salvation, but was about the promise and how God was going to work that promise through certain individuals. I don't believe it was about salvation. I believe it was about God selecting who he wanted to run the promises through. Now, Frank talked just briefly last week about God foreknowing things. Let me give you this analogy, and Joe and I talked about this yesterday just briefly. One of the things that that I think really trips people up, confuses people, is when we say, well, God already knows. Frank just talked about it a minute ago. God's in control. God already knows what's going to happen. But does knowing something mean that you made it happen? Does knowing something mean that you forced that decision to happen? The example I've used for years is this. I can take and I can put out corn and I can put out peas at my dinner table. I already know which one of my sons will pick the corn, which one of my sons will pick the peas because I know them that well. Does that mean I made them pick corn or peas? It just means that I know them and I love them and I know their heart and I know what they like. I didn't force them to choose, but I already knew because of who they were what they would choose. I also like to think of it this way. And if you haven't seen this movie, I apologize, I'm gonna spoil it for you. Rocky. Most of you have probably seen it, hopefully. Great movie. If you've never seen Rocky, and you and I sat down together to watch it, you are probably thinking to yourself, typical sports movie, Rocky will win at the end. Spoiler, he does not. But if I've already seen the movie, I know this. Does that mean I made it happen? No, I didn't make it happen. I just knew it because I've already seen it before. See, we operate on a timeline. That's how we operate, right? I can't, I can't fathom anything that doesn't happen within a linear timeline. God doesn't operate in that same timeline. God already knows. But that doesn't mean that he made the decision for you. One of the interesting things about Jacob and Esau is that uh, Esau would later, uh, the, the, the nation of Edom would come out of Esau and the Edomites would 
would be, to say they were cruel to the Israelites would be, would be kind of an understatement. And so God punishes them for that. Now, the question is, did he pick Jacob because he already knew what Esau's descendants would do? I don't know. But I know this. God doesn't have to explain to us why he does anything. He does it because he's God. He does it because he's just and he's fair. Scripture tells us that. Scripture says he's just, he's fair. So why do we worry about who he's choosing or who he's not choosing? It doesn't matter. I can tell you this. Did God choose me? Sure he did. He put the Holy Spirit in my heart and he called me. See, I believe that every one of us has a hole in our heart. And there's only one shape that fits it that can just make our heart whole. And that's Jesus Christ. See, we take a lot of things in our lives and we try to place it in that hole and we try to fix our heart. I know I tried a lot of different things to make me happy, a lot of different things to fill that hole. But only one thing worked, and that was Jesus Christ. Once I placed Jesus in my heart, my heart was fulfilled. It was whole. And I believe that he is calling every one of us. But unfortunately, like the Israelites, only some of us are answering that call. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love the ones that are not answering. In fact, he loves them so much that he wishes that they would accept him. But it's their choice not to. Their choice. Free will. Now, we can disagree on that. That's okay. My feelings won't be hurt. We don't have to agree. If you believe in predestination, if you believe that we're chosen, great. I'm just glad he chose me. We don't have to believe it together. But I do think that we have to have a belief. I think that we have to stand on something. Because I think one of the biggest problems we have as Christians is we don't understand what we believe. We don't know why we believe. We just take for granted that something that someone has told us is right. See, my belief on this isn't about somebody telling me what's right or wrong when it comes to this. My belief is out of me reading scripture, me studying the word of God, and me thinking God creating someone and then choosing them to damnation just doesn't seem like the God that I know. So for me, two and two doesn't add up to four. I have to go a different direction. Maybe for you it does. I don't know. And that's okay. We can disagree on that. 13. This is, I'm going to just read 13 and we're going to stop here. Just as written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. How many of you have read this in the past and had trouble with the wording? Does God really hate Esau? That's a tough one because it says right there. Of course, let's not forget this is an English translation. This is not the original manuscript. This is a translation. But let's look at Luke 14, 26. And this is Jesus speaking. Jesus, you know, the man of love. love. Love your neighbor. Love one another. If anyone comes to me and does not hate your father, your mother, your wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. <laughs> How many have ever read that and wondered what it meant? How do I tell my wife that Jesus says, I'm to hate you? 
How do I tell my mother? I mean, it's easy. I can tell them both. Probably won't get dinner tonight, but I can do it. But the reality is, what he's really saying is, you need to love me more than you love them. You need to love me more with your whole heart, with everything that you have, more than you love them. So basically what he's saying here is, I love Jacob and I love Esau, but I love Jacob more and the promises running through him. Now, some people may still have a problem with that. Take it up with God, not me. It's his scripture, not mine. I'm just relaying the word that he gave. Let's move on to uh, whatever, whatever verses we're on next. Can't find it on my screen. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, I think this has kind of a double meaning here. First of all, Paul's saying, look, God's going to have mercy on who he wants to have mercy it's not up to you to decide. Again, we go back to that God is just and fair. So why are we even questioning it? But I also think this is for the Israelites. I think Paul's saying, hey, get over it. God will love who he wants. He'll show mercy to who he wants. That's going to include these Gentiles. So you might want to get over that. Get over yourself, and we'll see more of that later. Because definitely... He is saying to them, it's God's choice. He'll do what he wants. Let's continue. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. So then he has mercy on, who he, on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Stop there. So, okay, now this is where the, the, whole, the whole elect and predestined say, well, right there it says he hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Poor Pharaoh didn't have a chance. God hardened it. So what do you have to say to that? Well, Exodus seven thirteen it said, yet Pharaoh's heart stiffened and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. If we read the story of Pharaoh, God kept coming to him through Moses. And what was Pharaoh's reaction? Yeah, no, stop. I'm not going to do it. You want to show me signs and wonders? I have people that will show you signs and wonders also. So now we go back to that whole four new thing. God already knew Pharaoh was never going to accept. Pharaoh was never going to, to agree with God. He was never going to accept God for who he was. So I will use him. I will use him to show my glory to all the nations. So now we go back. Did he harden his heart? Or did Pharaoh, through his own actions, harden his heart, and God just blessed that? 
You see, we have to understand when, when we look at the Israelites and we look at the Old Testament, <laughs> this is what I love about God. He gives you what you ask for. He gives you what you deserve. He gives you what you want. So let's just stop for a second. Okay, why are we studying all this? Why does it even matter? As a country, are we getting what we deserve? Are we getting what we want? We cry and we scream for different kings, in our case, presidents. God says, I'll give it to you. And then we have other people who, who are what I would call lazy Christians. No other way to put it. They just don't get involved at all. Why? Well, God's in control. We see that. Look at this. Look what God did with Pharaoh. Look what he did with Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Abraham. Look, God's going to do what he wants to do. He's in control. He doesn't need me. When we choose to not be involved, we're saying we don't care what happens. Now, I'm not saying you got to get out and you got to march or work the polls or vote. Look, I, I don't believe that we're going to change America through one election. We have to change it through one person at a time, through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through the church. That's how we do it. So when we say, well, you know what? I don't get involved in politics because it's too controversial and I don't care. You should. Not about the politics, but about loving one another, about showing the love to those who are opposite of you in politics, by showing love to those that are different than you socially. Because let me tell you something, if you get on any kind of social media, there are a lot of people out there right now who are on the opposite spectrum than we are socially. I don't even care about politically, just socially. Because my Bible says two, two genders. But if you look at society, we have more than I can name, supposedly. See, we don't even care about the word of God right now. We're making up our own stuff, just like the Israelites. The Israelites didn't care about all this stuff with Jesus. They had their own way of having religion, their own way of dealing with salvation. That was through the law. They didn't need this Messiah. In fact, they rather enjoyed working toward their salvation. We have a lot of people in today's society that don't care what Scripture has to say. They only care about how they feel because feelings are more important than truth. Can I tell you they're being lied to? They're being lied to every day. Your feelings should be coming from the Holy Spirit. And so if it's contradictive to what Scripture says, that's not the Holy Spirit giving you feelings. That's Satan. And that's just the bottom line. You see, we are in trouble within this country just like the Israelites were in trouble. God keeps saying, I want to do this through you. I want to make you a nation, a godly nation. And we keep saying, that's great. We'll get back to you on that. We have other things that we want to do right now. And so we have a bunch of Christians in this country who have allowed everything to just go off the, the rail. Why? I think mostly because most Christians don't know what they believe or why they believe it. How else, and, and I'm going to get just political for a second, whether you're a Democrat or a Republic, 
I, I don't care. But how did we ever get to the point where we thought that aborting a baby was right? Because as Christians, we somehow decided that we didn't want to get involved in that discussion. So we just let them have it. Can I tell you, I think God looks down on what's happening within this country. And I think he's, he's feeling sorrow, great sorrow, like he did with the people of Israel. Because the reality is, we have gotten so far from where we started. And it's not about a political party. It's about a theology. It's about the absence of Christ in our schools, in our home. And dare I say, in our churches. How do I know? Because I know churches that stand up for a lot of these social values and say that it's right. All love matters. All love is right. Even though their scripture says the exact opposite of that. How did we get here? I think that's what Paul's doing. I think Paul's looking at the Israelites and thinking, how did we get here? Are you kidding me? Jesus came. He died on the cross. It's simple. You don't have to work for your salvation. You just have to accept what's been given to you, a gift, the gift of Jesus Christ. And he cries out to that because it doesn't happen. I looked around my neighborhood last night uh, or yesterday and really the last couple of weeks and, and, and again, not to offend anybody, if you do this, I'm not judging you. We learned in past sermons that we're not to judge the jury. I live in the planners. We have got to be the most Halloween neighborhood I've ever seen in my life. I mean, we have haunted houses that you have to walk through to get candy. When did celebrating Halloween become bigger than celebrating the birth of Christ? When did Halloween become more important than celebrating the birth of Christ? In my neighborhood, it was a long time ago because we decorate way more elaborate for Halloween than we do for Christmas or Easter. Where have we gone wrong? because as Christians we don't know what to believe we just wait for someone to tell us you know one of the things that and I was going to say admire and that's kind of the wrong word to use but you know when you look at the Islamic faith when you look at Jehovah Witnesses I'm sure you've had visits from them in the past you ever had discussion with a Jehovah Witness not only do they know what they believe they know what you're supposed to believe. You know why? How can they argue with the enemy if they don't know what the enemy believes? And to you, you're the enemy. So they have learned what they believe, and they have learned how to argue against what you believe. We have got to be the one religion where people can't answer the majority of the questions of what they believe or why they believe it. And that's sad. It's sad that if you were given questions to answer, most of us probably wouldn't know the answers. We would look like fools 
People would wonder, why do you even call yourself a Christian? You don't even know what you believe or why you believe it. It's a great question. Because I can tell you that I have run into many Muslims and many Jehovah Witnesses who want to debate. And brother, I'm going to tell you something. They're sharp. They know what they believe and they know why they believe it. Luckily for me, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but the Holy Spirit was with me the whole way every time, giving me the words to say. Because you know what? The Holy Spirit is our guide. The Holy Spirit is the one that, that leads us into battle. But we use that as an excuse. I don't really need to know what Scripture says. The Holy Spirit will guide me. The Holy Spirit would like your help. Get to know what you believe, why you believe it. And I know I've gone way off from what we're talking about here in Scripture, but I can't help it. I think this is important. I think it's important to understand that the conflicts and the problems that the Israelites were having, the problems that Paul was worried about, they're the same things we go through today. And yet we read Scripture and we go, wow, those Israelites were dim. They couldn't get it. They just didn't understand Well, some people look at that and go, wow, those Christians, they're dim. They just don't get it. They don't understand. My dad, I may have said this last time, I don't know, but I like to talk about my dad. My dad was a, was a pastor that uh, for many years I couldn't stand. That's how most pastor's kids are. Um, not yours, of course. But, um, but you know, someone like me, um, I hated my dad for a while because he was everything that God wanted and I was everything that God didn't want and I didn't understand that. I ran from God. But my dad would stand up here and he'd say, look, what I've told you today, don't take my word for it. For all you know, I could be leading you off a cliff. We're talking about your salvation. We're talking about your eternal salvation. Don't just take it for granted that I'm teaching you the right things. This is called a Bible. Pick it up. Read it. Find out what you believe and why you believe it. And I will challenge you that when the pastor says something that you're not sure about or something that you don't, you don't agree with, send them 100 emails. Tell them how you feel, right? I mean, you, you welcome that in a loving way. Because I can tell you something, it's not always done in a loving way. Look, Frank's human. I mean, I think he is anyway. I don't know. He's superhuman, but Frank's human. And I can tell you this, and I'm going to brag on for just a second, and then we'll, we'll close this up, but you know what the average lifespan of a pastor is? Anybody have any idea? Back when I first got into ministry in... in 1991, I think the average lifespan of a pastor was seven years. The average lifespan of a youth pastor was three and a half years. I don't even know if the average lifespan of a pastor is three and a half years now. And the average lifespan of a full-time youth pastor, <laughs> less than a year, so clock's ticking, you got time, work on it. But you know, I think the reason that is because people come into this job thinking it's just like any other job. It's not. Caring for a flock, caring for people, caring for children, caring for their families, that is a difficult job. See, not only do 
do, we have to prepare to get up here and, and deliver a message that is meaningful and something that you can take home and go, wow, I was inspired today. But then they have to turn around and they have to actually do things throughout the week. See, misconception, the only thing he does is not just preach. You don't play golf. Most pastors get accused of preaching on Sunday and playing golf the rest of the week. Oh, I wish that were the case. I love golf, but it's not. The way Paul cares for the people, the way Paul cares for the Greeks and the Jews, you can hear it in his writing. He is passionate. He has love. We have to have that same thing for the body of Christ today. Because I'm going to tell you something, it's only going to get more difficult. How do I know? Look around. There has been a monumental shift just within the last 10 years. Can you imagine what another 10 years will be like? If the church does not stand up and take back what is right and serve God the way that we have been called to serve him through Scripture. It's easy. All we have to do, and I say all, because really this is all that's involved on our end. All we have to do is just accept Christ for who he is. Accept him as our savior. And guess what? The Holy Spirit takes over. God, God will take care of us. God will comfort us. God will wrap us up in his hands and he will see the growth take place. He will lead us and guide us in directions that we need to go. That's how you got here today. You're not here by accident. Nothing is by accident. You're here because God has ordained it. God has called you, and you are here for a reason. Now, all I've done today is make more work for Frank because I didn't even get through nine. But honestly, I, there was so much in here, and I, I felt so passionate about some of the things that, that we were going to talk about that I really didn't want to just gloss over them. Because I'm going to tell you something. The words of Paul come straight from God. And God's word is all that we have. God made promises. God has kept promises. Why is it important to understand the history of Israel? Because if God didn't keep his promises to Israel, how could we ever believe that he would keep his promises to us? Spoiler alert, that's what's coming up. But I think you probably already knew that. If we're going to start, we have to start with one person at a time. That starts in here today. So if you don't know Christ, all you have to do is ask him into your heart. And your journey begins today. And that journey spreads from one person to the next. I don't need to go out and work the poles. I don't need to put a, a sign in my yard. I just need to help change hearts because I'm going to tell you something. There are a lot of hurting people out there. Just click on any link today that talks about either candidate and then look at the comments below. It'll make you cry. I've never seen people stand up and vouch for men more than we do today. I don't stand up and vouch for Joe Biden. I don't stand up and vouch for Donald Trump. I stand up and vouch for Jesus Christ. I don't know Donald Trump. I don't know Joe Biden. But I know Jesus Christ. And I know that as long as I'm faithful 
as long as I do the things that God has asked me to do, then all things will turn out for his benefit. That's what it comes down to. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for for your grace. We don't deserve it. Maybe we didn't know that before today, but we don't deserve it. And yet you have chosen to give it to us. You went out of the scope of your original adoption and you included more children, which include us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. And we just pray, Lord, that if anyone here today does not know you, that today will be the day that they will reach out to you and that they will pray for a relationship and a new beginning. We just thank you, Lord, for your promises, but more importantly, for your kept promises because we know that you are a God who will always be there, who will never change. You are the same today that you were yesterday and that you will be tomorrow. And that is a promise that we can stand on and that we can rejoice in. In your son's name we pray, amen.